While the flower may fade and the grass may wither, the word of our God endures forever. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eliezer, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. When he had sent word to Moses, he said, I, your father-in-law of Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. And Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. They asked each other uh, of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them on the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel and that he had delivered them from the hand of the Egyptians. And Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. Since the reading of the Lord's word this morning, let's pray and ask him to bless it to us. God in heaven, we thank you for your word. It is eternal and it stands as what is true. So as we come, Lord, test our thoughts, test our attitudes and our hearts to know uh, where we are, Lord, and who we are. May you... Tell us the story again of Jesus, our Lord, and help us to respond in faith. In his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So I'm going to commit a cardinal sin now by opening with a reference to Lord of the Rings. I know. Um, In the Fellowship of the Ring, the party, all the characters, they get ambushed by the bad guys. Right? And Frodo, the main character, he gets stabbed with a ghost sword. Um, it's looking really bad. He's uh, really hurt. And he barely escapes with his life. Uh, he's, he rides away. Uh, the, the bad guys, at the last minute, get swept away. Um, and thankfully, he falls asleep and wakes up safe. He wakes up in this city of Rivendell. And it's here where the characters uh, and the readers get a chance to rest. This is a place where uh, when you're reading, you breathe a sigh of of relief. They escaped. Everything's okay. That was close, right? It was action. It was high intensity. And now we rest and we reflect on everything that has happened, uh, as well as prepare for what's to come. So in other words, Rivendell is this narrative oasis where everyone breathes a sigh of relief and gets to get prepared for what's to come. And in certain ways, Exodus 18, this chapter is a narrative oasis as well, except this story is real, and the author is the Lord. Because here in Exodus 18, Israel and us reading, we breathe a sigh of relief. 
Everyone gets a chance to catch their breath because what has just happened? They just fought a big battle with the Amalekites. They have been through testing after testing, grumbling after grumbling, no food, no water. Things have been intense and difficult. And now we finally get a chance to breathe and reflect on everything that has just happened and prepare for what's to come. The second, the second half of Exodus 18 is where we start to prepare for what's to come. But today, we're just reading the first 12 verses because it's here that we reflect on everything that God has done. And we give thanks. We reflect on what the Lord has done for his people and we rejoice. This is our chance to to remember the Lord's deliverance and to respond to it with faith. Because in it, in this chapter, in this section, the Lord tells the story of what he's done for Israel all over again. In fact, this, this story is, is kind of the, the completion. This chapter is the completion of everything that has come before. We've come full circle. And now we're getting ready for what the Lord will do in the future. But first, we remember what the Lord has done. And in short, the story that the Lord is telling, the story that God is writing is this. The Lord has conquered your enemies. He has plundered you from them, carried you off. And so now he tells you to respond to his good news with joy, with thankfulness, with confession, and with worship. The Lord has plundered you from your enemies. So rejoice. Bless him, confess him, and worship him. That's our main point this morning. So let's remember where we are. Israel has just fought a battle with Amalek, and they survived this attack. This attack was not from any ordinary enemy, but Amalek was the grandson of Esau. And it's as if the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent are fighting. They're at odds with each other. One is the child of promise. The other is the child of the devil. And now the child of the devil has come to devour Israel. And Israel only survives because their mediator walked up the hill and lifted up his hands in surrender. Israel wins when their mediator walks up the hill, lifts up his hands in surrender. And that was the cross. We saw how... We live. We have victory because Christ has walked up the hill, lifted up his hands in surrender. And so and after this big battle, now we, we uh, read these words in full circle of what has happened all the way back in chapter 2 and 3 of Exodus. We read this in verse 1. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel's people and how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. So if you remember Jethro, uh, this man was the man who took Moses in all the way back in chapter 2. In chapter 2, Moses, uh, seeking to establish himself as Israel's Messiah before Israel was ready, before the time was ready, uh, he rose up and killed an Egyptian. And the next day he went out seeking to be Israel's judge, jury, and executioner, and Israel rejected him. And so Moses fled, and he was forced to run to Midian where he met Jethro, and where Jethro gave him uh, Zipporah as wife. And the text tells us a lot of times 
that Jethro is Moses' father-in-law. So in case you didn't know, Jethro is Moses' father-in-law. It's about 12 times in this chapter we're told Jethro is Moses' father-in-law. So don't forget that Jethro is Moses' father-in-law, okay? There'll be a quiz next week, and I'll ask you, who's Jethro? And if you don't say he's Moses' father-in-law, you fail. Um, but over and over and over again, it tells us these things, and we'll, we'll see maybe why later. But this man hears about all that God has done. And so he gathers up Zipporah and Moses' two sons uh, because Moses had sent them back to Jethro at some point. But what strikes me is the care that the author goes to tell us not just what Jethro does, but tells us the names of Moses' sons and what they mean, because each name tells a story. Because each name reminds us of what has come before. So verse 3, the name of the one son was Gershom, for he said, that's Moses, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. It's easy to forget that Moses was separated from his people for 40 years. 40 years, Moses was in Midian. 40 years, he was away from his people, from everyone that he had ever known, from everyone that he had ever loved. 40 years, he lived in Midian, long enough that his family, they'd probably passed away. But he never forgot where he came from. He always remembered that Midian was not his home because he remembered where he was supposed to go. He was always considering himself a sojourner, which means that he was only there temporarily because he knew that one day he would go back. And the Lord called him to go back and said, Moses, it's time. What you tried to do back in chapter 2, Moses, wasn't right. Now go back and do it my way. You are to be Israel's mediator, to be the one who brings Israel out of slavery, but you're going to do it God's way. So Moses is the man that God has called, a flawed man, a broken man, an exiled man. But this is who God called. So in telling us the name of Gershom, we remember this story. Remember what the Lord has done for Moses. And the very next name of his next son shows us even greater. The name of the other, Eliezer, this is verse 4. Eliezer, for he said, The God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. The first thing we notice is that he says, The God of my father, which is how the Lord first introduced himself to Moses at the burning bush. God said to Moses, Come close, take off your sandals, it's holy ground. I am the God of your father. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob. That's how the Lord first introduced himself to Moses. And in naming his son Eliezer, the, uh, Moses is saying, that God, he is my help. That God delivered me. I could have died under the sword of Pharaoh, but that God who met me at the burning bush, he saved me. So in a way, the second name is is Moses' confession. But it's also Moses' acknowledgement that he needed help, that he needed the Lord's salvation, the Lord's rescue, the Lord's deliverance. And from what? From the consequences of Moses' own actions. 
And so he confesses that the Lord has delivered him by naming his son Eliezer. And so we remember the story. Remember all that the Lord has done for Moses, how the Lord has equipped this man to go and to be the man who brings Israel out of slavery. And so Jethro, he brings Moses' family uh, to Moses at the mountain of God. And he says to Moses, I, this is verse 6, I, your father-in-law, don't forget, he's a father-in-law. Jethro, I'm coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. And so Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, don't forget, and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. And so in this, this picture, Jethro brings his family, uh, and Jethro brings his wife, his wife whom he hasn't seen in so, so long. And Moses says, oh, great. Hi, Jethro, I'm going to kiss you. Um, and Zipporah is there like, are you going to kiss me or I know if I went and kissed my father-in-law instead of Masha, she might be a little upset with me. Um, this is normal, actually, though. This is, the, this is Moses showing deference to Jethro. It's him saying, thank you for taking care of my family. And it's a joyful reunion. They, they kiss each other. They ask each other their welfare. They go into the tent together. This is joyful. They're meeting together in peace. And then Moses, this man who himself has been delivered, starts to tell Jethro the story of all that God has done. In fact, told is not quite the right way to translate this word um, because it says in verse 8, right, Moses told his father-in-law. It's maybe more like Moses declared to his father-in-law all that God had done. He declares this story, and he doesn't just do the Cliff Notes version. He doesn't say, here, I'm going to give you the bullet points of what God has done. He says, all that the Lord has done to Pharaoh, to the Egyptians, for Israel's sake, all the hardships that had come upon them in the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. Moses, this man who himself has been delivered, declares the story of how God has delivered Israel. And this word delivered shows up quite a few times, right? Eliezer, God of my father is my help, for he delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Um, verse 8, all the hardships that had come upon them and how the Lord had delivered them. And then uh, in verse 9, Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel and that he had delivered them from the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, blessed be the Lord who has delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. When the Bible repeats a word over and over and over again, something's important. It's telling us something important, that this word is important and we need to know it. And so we should ask, well, what does it mean to be delivered? What does it mean that the Lord has delivered them? And this word to deliver is actually the same word that was used back in chapter 12 when Israel plundered the Egyptians. In essence, they delivered the gold from the Egyptians' pockets and put it in their own pockets. It's in a sense, right, to take, to take from, to tear from, to withdraw out of, to rob, to plunder. And so what I think is happening is when the Lord is saying over and over and over again, I have delivered you, I have delivered you, I have delivered Israel. In other words, what the Lord is saying is I have conquered and I have plundered you. 
I conquered the Egyptians, and I tore you from their hands. And so, over and over again, we see that the Lord has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, out of the hand of Pharaoh, out of the hands of Egypt. What this means is that Egypt had a grasp on Israel. Israel was was locked in the tight grasp of Pharaoh. And God has pried them loose. And what this means is that once they belonged to Pharaoh, they were slaves. They belonged to Egypt. They were they were locked in place. They were in shackles. They were in chains. And now the Lord has set them free. He has plundered them, which means now they rightfully belong to the Lord. They don't belong to Pharaoh anymore. They belong to God. Which means that when Moses declares this story, what he's declaring is the good news that the Lord has won victory and then collected his rightful spoils, Israel. And once they were slaves in Pharaoh's kingdom, but now they are citizens of God's. And this begs the question, why would God do this? What does God have to gain from plundering a bunch of slaves? And I don't know, I, I haven't been plundering lately. Um, but I think that if I were to go plundering, I'm pretty sure that the things that I would take would be things that I would consider valuable. I wouldn't take stuff that I didn't care about. I would take the things that are valuable, that are worth having. I think the Lord does the same thing. When he goes and he plunders Egypt, he takes the things that are valuable to him. And it's not gold, it's not jewelry, it's not fancy things. It's slaves and broken people like Moses. That is who the Lord considers valuable. Valuable enough to plunder. Valuable enough that he said, I want them. Why? Because he loved them. Because Israel was his firstborn. Israel belonged to the Lord. He's jealous for what belongs to him. And he will stop at nothing to plunder those who belong to him from the, the kingdom of darkness. You know what I'm talking about. You know that what I'm talking about is not just the Exodus. I'm talking about the cross. I'm not just talking about Israel. I'm talking about you. Because what has the Lord done for you? What is the story that he declares that Jesus Christ entered the strong man's house and plundered him? He defeated the devil. He defeated sin. He defeated death. And he took you as his rightful spoils because he said, I want you. You are valuable to me. Valuable enough to give up my life. That's what the cross is about. The cross is where Jesus 
plundered you. You do not belong to the world anymore. You do not belong to sin anymore. You do not belong to death. Once those things held a tight grasp on you. But not anymore. Sin has been broken. Death has died. Because Jesus Christ lives. And you are the treasure that Jesus considered valuable enough to ransom with his own blood. So how should we respond to this good news? Well, the next few verses show us. Look at Jethro. Verse 9, Jethro hears the story of God's deliverance, and he rejoices. Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel and how he had delivered them from the hand of the Egyptians. Now, somebody only rejoices when they believe that it happened. If you don't believe that it happened, all you're going to do is nod your head like, "Mm -hmm, cool, whatever. Good news doesn't spark anything in you if you don't think it's real. Good news doesn't produce joy unless you believe it applies to you. In other words, joy comes from faith. It comes from hearing the good news of the gospel and believing it. So when you look at your own life and you wonder, why am I not joyful? Why am I not a joyful person? Or why do I not feel joy? Why do I feel downtrodden? Why am I depressed? Why am I scared? Why am I sad? Why do I struggle to believe? Go back to the basics. Tell yourself the gospel story. What has Jesus done for you? And then believe it. Believe that the Lord has plundered you because he loved you. That is where joy comes from. It comes from hearing the gospel and believing it. And that is how we should respond. And then Jethro, the second thing that he does in response to hearing the gospel is verse 10. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. And we live in an age where to bless someone right, means you do something nice for them. You cook a meal for someone, they say, oh, that blessed me. It's not, that's not wrong. That's not a bad way to think of it. But when we're blessing God, it's easy to think, well, then I must be doing something for God. Right? To bless God means I do something nice for him. And that's not quite what it means when we bless God. That's not what Jethro is doing when he says, blessed be the Lord. He's not saying, I'm going to do nice things for God. Um, no, what it means is to bless the Lord means to give a special sort of praise. You're acknowledging in thanksgiving that your trust in God has been fully vindicated. 
You're saying, I trusted God and he has delivered me. Blessed be the Lord. The response is thankfulness. God has done for me what I could never do. God has blessed me. God has loved me. God has plundered me. Thank you, God. Thank you, Lord, for forgiving me. And again, if you don't believe that the Lord has fully delivered you from sin and death, you're not going to be thankful. Not only will you not rejoice, but you won't be thankful. You won't uh, bless him because you haven't seen yet all that God has done for you. You don't yet understand all that he has done for you. So if you're looking at your life and you're thinking, why am I not more thankful? The solution isn't, well, I'm going to make an an effort to thank God for everything, every single day. And I'm going to make a checklist of all the things he's done. I'm going to just be thankful. I'm just going to say, thank you, thank you, thank you. Not a bad thing. But where does it start? Hear the gospel. Believe it. That's where thankfulness comes from. It comes from hearing what the Lord has done. And believing it. And then this, hearing the gospel, this belief, this faith, produces a third thing that Jethro shows us in verse 11. Jethro says this, Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. In other words, in response to the good news that Jesus, or that the Lord has, has uh, plundered Israel from Egypt, Jethro confesses the Lord. He says, now I know this God, that he's greater than any other God. Now many, as you might assume, want to talk about how Jethro is saying that the Lord is greater than a bunch of gods. There's a bunch of them. They're not all great. God's great. We're good. They want to make him out to be a polytheist. Uh, But I think what Jethro is saying is not... There's a bunch of gods, and God's just like one of the the good ones. I think this is what Jethro is saying. The Lord is greater than the so-called gods of this world because those gods are nothing more than arrogant men. They are people who believe themselves to be something when they are in reality nothing. Who could he possibly be talking about? He's talking about Pharaoh. Because Pharaoh literally believed himself to be a god. All the pharaohs of Egypt thought that they were descended from divinity, that in some way they were sons of God, they were divine in some way. And so when the Lord comes and says, give me my people, Pharaoh says, I don't have to listen to you. I am my own god. I have power too. And so every time the Lord brings a sign, Pharaoh brings out his magicians and says, hey, do the same sign to prove that I'm as powerful as God is. And when his magicians start to fail and start to not be able to do it, Pharaoh then starts to negotiate with God as though they're on equal playing terms. He said, well, fine, I'll give you the men, but not the women and children. Fine, go, but only for like three days and then come back. Because he believed himself that he could argue with God. 
in his arrogance, he thought that he was as powerful as God, or maybe not as powerful, but at the very least, he's on the same level. So what Jethro is saying is that Pharaoh is no God. Only the Lord is God. And I know him. So why is confession important? Why isn't it enough to just have joy and thankfulness? Why do we have to bother with confession? I think it's important because it's not just about acknowledging what the Lord has done. It's an acknowledgement that it's something only he could have done. Not just saying, God has done a lot for me. I could have done it myself, um, but I just didn't have the time. In other words, if, if all I am is simply joyful and thankful, that still leaves room for another God. Yes, I'm joyful. I'm thankful to the Lord for all he's done. I just think Vishnu is neat too. But confession leaves no room for any other God. Not out there and not in here. So the Lord, through Jethro, calls his people to respond to the good news of the gospel with joy, with thankfulness, with confession, and lastly, with worship. Verse 12, And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. Now, this verse is what really ties the last 18 chapters all together. Because in chapter 3, the Lord said this to Moses, I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. What mountain is he talking about? It's the mountain where God appeared to Moses in the burning bush. It's the mountain where the Lord stood upon the rock and had Moses hit him and produced water for the people. It's the mountain where Jethro comes and meets with Moses. It's the mountain of Sinai where the Lord will give him his law. This is God's mountain. And the sign that Moses shall know that the Lord is with him is that when he brings the people out of Egypt, they will go to that mountain and there they shall serve God. What happens in verse 12? They go to the mountain, and there they serve God. There they offer sacrifices to him. And there they eat bread together before God. Have you realized yet that everything Jethro does in response to the good news of the Lord, we do every single Sunday? Every Sunday, we replay the story, the story that the Lord wrote of the good news of the deliverance that we have in Jesus Christ, that we are his plunder. He is our king. We hear this story. And throughout the whole service, we respond to it in joy. We sing. We rejoice. We bless God. We give thanks to him. We confess him. 
and we worship him by the giving of our sacrifices of praise and our offerings, and by eating bread together before his presence. That everything we do on Sunday, we find here in this passage, because it's how we are to respond to the gospel every single week. So everything you do today at worship, do it because Jesus has delivered you. Do it because you believe that he has torn you from the hands of the devil, that he has torn you from the hands of sin and from death. Believe it and come before God with joy, with thankfulness, confessing him and worshiping him. And so let us come together. Let us eat bread as the plundered people of God before his presence. I have to ask the elders to come forward so that we can partake of this meal.